Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Jim Mellon, the entrepreneur, investor and philanthropist, has a track record in investing in some of the technologies and innovations that shape our future. The one that is particularly preoccupying him at the moment is the cultured meat market, sometimes called cell meat, in vitro meat, lab meat or clean meat. Uh, he has written a new book, Moose Law, An Investor's Guide to the New Agrarian Revolution. Uh, Jim Mellon, I wonder if you could start by giving a, a, a layman's guide to what this new agrarian revolution involves. Well, thank you very much, Graham. This industry is nascent. It's small. Only about a billion dollars has gone into it so far, which sounds like a lot of money, but in the context of a what will be a multi-multi-billion dollar market, it's relatively small. Uh, so I felt I had to write a book because... Uh, there were great opportunities for investors. And um, I wanted to convey, you know, the excitement that I have for all the good things that this will do for the world and also the opportunities for people to profit uh, in the development of this new industry. In a nutshell, uh, cellular agriculture um, or lab-grown agriculture is the cultivation of products in what you might call factories. Factories are full of bioreactors, stainless steel, and so forth. Uh, And the products don't just encompass meats, all types of meats, uh, but also seafood and materials such as leather, cotton, or threads, uh, where there are companies uh, already engaged in uh, making these products. There are about 30 investable companies in the world that are engaged in this industry. Uh, And what they do essentially is to take a sample from either a living animal or a fish or of the materials that they want to produce and they extract stem cells, um, which as you know, are the precursor cells uh, to growth and in anything, uh, including our own bodies. And they bathe those stem cells in nutrients, which typically are sugar, uh, starches, uh, and other uh, forms of feedstock that essentially replicate what would happen to an animal or material in real life. And they introduce growth factors uh, which differentiate stem cells that make fat, in the case of meat or connective tissue, uh, or, um, or, or muscle, Uh, And then they separate those uh, into separate bioreactors, big stainless steel tanks getting bigger and bigger as scale goes up. And um, at the end of a period of time, you end up with three or two or three lots of gloop that is put back together in the form of food, uh, in the case of meat and similarly with uh, seafood. To put this in in a kind of uh, very simple example is that a sample drawn from a cow, a biopsy from a cow, which doesn't die, doesn't even feel it, of 2.5 milliliters, which as you know is nothing, very, very small, can go on to produce uh, 
in 40 days the equivalent of seven or eight cows worth of meat, which is 3,000 kilos of meat, compared to growing those cows typically on feedlots, which is the way that um, intensive farming works, um, over a 28 month period. At the moment, the cost of the inputs, the cost of the media, the growth factors and so forth, uh, because this industry started as a replica of biotech is still too high, but it's coming down very rapidly. And it won't be too long, and I would say maximum of five years, when we will reach what I call griddle parity, which is when the price of these products comes down to either at or below the cost of conventional meat, conventional seafood or conventional materials. Uh, and the last point I'll make is that Rethink X, a very noted and respected London consultancy, thinks that um, the conventional meat market will be displaced to the extent of 50%, and I was half of all the market by 2030, just nine years away, uh, by uh, either plant-based meats, which as you know, have taken off very rapidly, particularly during the pandemic, or sell ag meats. Um, so this is going to be a remarkable transformation of what is a huge addressable market. So that, in a summary, is uh, where we're at at the moment. Well, uh, Jim, the, the, there's a lot to um, to unpick and, um, dare I say, to chew on in, in that summary. Um, it, it's important, I think, the, the point you make that uh, this is not to, this is related to, but not to be confused with. Um, plant-based fake meat, uh, you know, companies like corn have been around since the, since, since the 1980s, uh, producing uh, meat from, uh, from microproteins, you know, so the, the plant-based meat. This is something which is taken from the, the cells of animals, not just cows, can be chicken, fish, uh, lamb, and, and grown in, in, a, in a laboratory. Um, you, you, you see, it's about two to three weeks, did you say, between uh, the cell being extracted and a large mass of, uh, of, of meat uh, being um, edible from that point, is it? No, it's for 40 days. 40 days, 40 days. Yeah. So, uh, uh, I mean, this isn't to be confused with a kind of, you know, cloning Dolly the sheep, is it? This is, you're, you're creating really a large kind of almost like a massive bolus of meat, are you? Yes, to begin with. I mean... First of all, there's no cloning involved here at all. And secondly, uh, GM is not used. So, you know, genetic modification is not used. What you're essentially doing is taking the same, same cells that would grow, uh, you know, a, a, a fetus, a uh, cow fetus, for instance, into a full-sized animal. Um, and you're doing that by employing effectively the same nutrients that a cow would take in to get to that size but of course you're not having to grow the uh parts of the cow that are not used so um you know the internal organs uh you're not growing tails uh you're not growing the hide except if you specifically want uh, uh leather you're not growing the head and so forth so you're just growing the meat that that, that is uh, usable and that people would eat now, the reason why uh, it starts off as a gloop and, and is because in the United States, 60% of all meat is ground. It's minced sausages, hamburgers. In the UK and in Europe, it's about 50%. Um, you don't need to add 
structure to that. You don't need to make it look like a steak on the plate. <clears throat> you just need to form it into a patty or into a sausage or whatever. So it's much easier to go from the laboratory to those sort of products than it is, for instance, to create a steak, which is marbled, it's got fat, you know, bits running through it and uh, possibly a bone and so forth. That, that's, that's, some, that's a way off. Uh, so they're addressing initially the market for ground meat. Um, but in the case of seafood, uh, Blue Nalu, which is the leading company, is already producing fillets. So it's producing fillets of fish without, you know, the scales and without the head and the tail and all that sort of stuff, um, uh, which look, taste, feel just like um, a fillet of fish that you would eat in a restaurant or at home. So the fish market in that sense is more advanced. Uh, the meat market, I think they're really cherry picking to begin with the obvious opportunities. Um, and I will say that uh, a cow is a very inefficient converter of plant protein into meat. A chicken is a little bit more efficient, but a cow is 25 to one. A chicken is nine to one and the other animal species are somewhere in between. The, the cell-grown uh, meats uh, will be approximately two to one. So you can see, Graham, the opportunity for the cost uh, of this type of food to come down well below the cost of conventional meat because of the efficiency of conversion of inputs to outputs. Um, and hence the great opportunity, and hence the name of the book, Moore's Law, which is a complete riff off, obviously, Moore's Law in the semiconductor business. So there's a big, uh, you know, excitement about the fact that not only will this stuff be healthier, and we can talk about that in a second if you want, um, better for the environment, uh, better for human health for all sorts of reasons, but it will also be cheaper, and of course it will be perfectly pure. It won't have any antibiotics or uh, hormones attached to it and the shelf life will be longer than in conventional uh, foods. So there's a lot going for this and hence uh, a, a lot of people, if they can execute properly, believe that this industry will supplant much of the existing intensive farming industry that we know so well today. Well, I, I want to come to the environmental health and, and indeed economic uh, consequences uh, shortly. I just before we go there, I, I just want to put it to the the all important taste uh, test. I, I understand the point you're making about um, the priority for now being with with red meats, about uh, uh, mince and and uh, beef burger patties, um, with fish, uh, uh, which you mentioned, uh, and also a bit down the line, the, the development of of, uh, of steaks and so on. Um, would it just be essentially replicating exactly, so every piece would be exactly the same, there would be no variety? How would it pass the, the, the taste test for those who like that um, variety in their, in their meat eating? Yeah, a, a great question. I mean, basically, because you can replicate any species or any type of species or any combination of species by just taking stem cells, uh, the, there will be plenty of varieties. So if you want Wagyu beef, you'll get Wagyu beef. If you want, um, you know, beef, Angus uh, beef, you'll get Angus beef. And of course, there is the 
the possibility in the future of actually creating what you might call novel foods, foods that don't exist in nature by using stem cells in a different way or combinations of stem cells. So the taste issue is not really uh, one that I'm worried about. Uh, it is true that in the case of, for instance, in seafood and in the case of meat, some aspects of the naturally produced, if you can call it natural, uh, because intensive farming is not natural, foods will need to be bolstered in the lab context because, uh, for instance, in seafood, omega-3 is, is absorbed by the fish from algae, which is not possible in the lab-grown process. So you have to add omega-3 to the mix. Uh, and similarly for beef, vitamin B12 will have to be added because cows get it from bacteria. And um, so that needs to be added to the mix, but that's not a, an impediment of any type or any major type at all. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Can, can we turn to the, to the environmental argument? Um, how you see uh, these developments, this agrarian revolution uh, transforming uh, global warming and also other uh, environment-related uh, issues? It's generally accepted, you know, the reduction in intensive farming would be a very good thing. We know that the world's population is expanding, and particularly in countries where they're demanding more animal protein as they get richer. Uh, so, for instance, in China and India, if they were to reach the level of consumption of animal protein that we have in the West, it would be a, cat a catastrophe for the environment. Next, you've got water allocation issues. Beef, as an example, is extremely water intensive. It takes 15,000 liters of beef to produce, sorry, of water to produce one kilo of beef. The cell manufacturing of beef uses obviously a fraction of that and a fraction of the land. 70% of all crops, Graham, uh, grown around the world go into animals uh, and in particular soybeans. And all of those soybeans, as we know, are now grown in the Amazon rainforest, which is chopped down to produce this unnecessary crop, which in itself adds to uh, global warming. Uh, and then you've got the issue of human health. You've got 80% of antibiotics going into intensively farmed uh, animals. Those antibiotics then go into the food supply. We eat them. We become antibiotic resistant uh, as, as you know, the you know, increasingly less antibiotics and extremists that can be used for uh, severe illnesses. And the, the worry is that, you know, pandemics, uh, which we've seen in the last 20 years, which are viral pandemics, could actually become bacterial pandemics for which there is no solution and which would be much, much worse than the current devastating one that we're going through at the moment. So in every environmental box, uh, every single box is ticked by th this new uh, and necessary um, industry. So it's, it's a great thing for humanity if this could be encouraged, developed and, and scaled up quickly. Well, I mean, the, the, I mean, the potential is, as you say, enormous. Let, let's assume for the sake of argument that potential is fulfilled and the cultured meat market does become uh, the, the dominant uh, source of um, of uh, of um, uh, agriculture in in the world are, are there something that happens that rapidly? I mean, there's always the law of unintended co consequences. Um, I wonder, for example, you know, how many um, of these uh, laboratories would be necessary, and actually, would they would they be energy efficient? Isn't there a danger that these laboratories would 
become uh, um, very large users of, of energy as well. To my knowledge, and I'm, I'm uh, you know, there are, there are a variety of the, the of techniques that are employed, obviously, by different companies, which is why I really like the cellular agri agriculture industry, because they all have individual IPs and they're much more defensible than in the plant-based meats, where you and I could start up a company tomorrow and call it Graham and Jim's, you know, uh, plant-based meats. And um, we wouldn't have any, we'd be marketing organizations, essentially. But these companies have defendable IP. My understanding is that overall, the carbon footprint in terms of energy usage and uh, obviously the emissions uh, from animals is an absolute fraction, maybe 1%, 1 to 2% of the current output of intensive farming. So it's, it's, it's net net extremely positive. And of course they use, it's estimated that these factories uh, will use about 1% of the land that's currently employed to produce the same amount uh, of meat and, and food. So they're incredibly positive for the environment. There are uh, two companies, Air Protein and Solar Foods out of Finland, uh, which are actually working on using solar radiation, i.e. solar panels in countries that are food insecure, such as Dubai, where uh, I currently am, uh, to produce literally protein out of thin air using electrolysis and a, a particular type of microbe called a hygienotroph to uh, separate hydrogen and oxygen and take carbon out of the air and it produces a, a, a soya bean type protein uh, at a equivalent cost to the current production of, uh, of uh, soya but employing the sun's uh, natural you know, uh, radiation to, to produce that which is very exciting. But it's not a, it's not a lab grown product in the in the way that the meat is or the materials are. But it's nonetheless part of the agricultural revolution that we're describing. Mm. Well, the, the speed of this is something I just want to pursue a, a, a little bit more, particularly with regard to what the consequences could be in, in developing world countries. Uh, many of them, the majority of the population, earn their living from uh, traditional farming. Uh, in the space of 10 to 20 years, uh, if your uh, expectations are fulfilled, they, they, could, uh, they could all be unemployed, uh, other, or almost all unemployed. Um, what kind of uh, labour offset would there be if they were working in uh, laboratories standing by uh, bioreactors instead? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. At the moment, in the developed world, as you know, about 1% of the workforce is employed in agriculture, typically and it's a it's pretty automated and not all of that agriculture and including in the developing world will be displaced by what we're talking about we're talking about the production of proteins we're not talking about the production of tomatoes lettuces uh vegetables fruits etc which will not be grown in labs and will carry on as as they currently are which are a big factor in overall food production there will definitely be a reduction in the number of people uh employed in conventional intensive farming um, but of course the quality of the jobs related to laboratories will be much higher and higher paid and as we know in most parts of the world including in the developed world the profession of farming intensively is uh, intensive farming is um, is generally precarious it's not a not a very lucrative profession typically and uh, it has been estimated by the Good Food Institute that um, once crops are actually grown for human consumption as opposed to animal consumption, 
the production of crops by farmers will be much, much more profitable because human crops get much more uh, margin attached to them than the production of crops for animals. So it's a very mixed picture. It, it's not going to result in mass unemployment. It's not the replacement of the horse and cart with the motor car. Um, and it's the replacement of fairly typically unskilled jobs with highly skilled jobs. So I think the net effect will, as with all progress, will, pro will be positive. Well, I, I want to look at your idea of, of griddle parity, um, the point at which uh, mass production brings the, the price of cultured meat down to that of traditionally produced uh, animal meat. Um, you said there are about 30 companies, in, 30 main companies in the game at the moment. For something which is potentially so um, earth-changing, so uh, um, you know, utterly altering the whole nature of the world economy, 30 companies doesn't strike me as a, as a great number. If we reach a stage where uh, the real profitability is made by uh, maximising scale in two or three companies, let's say, and they're able to dominate the market by their scale, is there a danger that we are creating for food, a kind of Amazon and Google uh, you know, a small number of companies which will have um, near monopoly status. And whilst that would obviously be very good for, for those who've invested in, in those two or three uh, um, companies, uh, is, is that really good for, for the rest of us? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, obviously, we don't know which way the industry is going to go. But my suggestion in the book is that we'll have three outcomes. One is fold. We'll have the natural culling of companies that can't make it. Uh, let's go bust. We'll have salt, which will form the majority, because they've got this IP, but they may not be capable of scaling or um, or executing at, at large scale, and certainly not uh, in distributing their product. And so you'll get companies like Unilever, Nestle, etc., buying them up. And already you can see the majors buying into some of these companies in a relatively small way, but nonetheless putting their toes in the water because. The big food companies are, I, I would say, product agnostic. They, they, they will sell what the consumers want as long as it's you know, legal. And um, uh, the way, rather like big pharma buys biotech companies to buy in innovation, I think the same thing will happen um, in, in, in this industry. And the last one, so you've got Fold, Sold, and the last one is Bold. And there'll be one or two uh, that will branch out and carry on and develop themselves and, into large-scale companies. And... You know, if I had to guess, I would say companies, for instance, that are making materials will probably go down that path, possibly. Um, the one that makes leather, for instance, we're very bullish on, Vitro Labs. Um, and in seafood, because it's uh, an industry where, uh, although there are large global players, it's not as heavily concentrated as the food industry currently is. And um, I think that Blue Nile or maybe one of the other ones, uh, could actually become a large company in its own right, especially with the quality of the management team that you find in um, in Blue Nalu. So I don't, we can't really forecast how it's going to work out. And you're right, you know, 30 companies isn't a lot, but I can guarantee there are actually 60 companies, but 30 of them are, uh, are really not ones that I would want to invest in. You know, they're producing kangaroo meat or foie gras or, um, you know, obscure stuff. And uh, uh, the markets that I, I don't think are big enough to support them um so but there are lots and lots of presumably people sitting in their 
living rooms working out uh, new companies. So rather like the internet, you know, when it started, there were five or six companies and then it exploded to far too many of them. And then gradually, you know, uh, it narrowed down again. Uh, I think the same will happen uh, with this. And just to let you know about the scale of the market, the meat market on its own is about the size of the Spanish economy around the world. So it's $1.4 trillion. Seafood is two to $300 billion and materials is bigger yet. So I estimate that the current addressable market for all these companies is about $5 trillion. And put that in context, that's twice the size of the whole of the UK economy. So the prize is very big indeed, Graham. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the prize will, will come in, in scale and uh, being competitive. Uh, it, it will come with people accepting the taste, but it, it also has a, a further uh, hurdle it has to cross, and, and that is regulatory uh, approval. Um, the innovation is happening so rapidly, we, we're not really able to, to measure the long-term uh, health uh, effects of, of some of these uh, innovations in, in meat culture. Um, what has the response in major... Uh, in major jurisdictions in the United States, Europe um, and Asia been to uh, regulatory permissiveness uh, so far? And where do you see regulation going uh, over the next five years? Yeah, well, uh, Singapore, as you've probably seen, has, uh, has authorised the sale of the Eat Just uh, cell cultured chicken. So that's either on sale or about to go on sale in Singapore. I know it's a small market, but it's a very technologically sophisticated market. Blue Nalu is likely to be on the market with its seafood by the end of this year. It's been working with the FDA. There's absolutely no reason why their product won't be on the market. In meats, I talked to Mark Post, you know, Dr. Mark Post, the inventor of the first cell burger yesterday, and he reckons that within a year and a bit, there'll be regulatory approval for some meat in the European Union. And in the United States, I think we're about two years out for the meat uh, to be approved. Now, these companies don't need to go through uh, the biotech type of trials, drug trials, you know, phase one, two, three, et cetera. Uh, they don't need to spend vast amounts on, um, on trialing or uh, safety um, because this is naturally derived stuff. There is no genetic modification involved. There's no DNA insertion or deletion or anything like that. So you know, the, their main challenge is to produce this stuff at scale. It's not about the, uh, the quality or the safety of the stuff that comes out. So in all honesty, I think that while there may be some consumer resistance, you know, the talk of particularly by the meat lobbies of Frankenfoods and, you know, dangers because it's all produced in a lab, etc. The companies that we've uh, talked to have obviously done focus groups and they've done some consumer surveys and they think that about 70% of consumers We'll be happy to try this out, um, particularly if the taste, texture, and prices are uh, equivalent. And uh, the, in the, the younger generation, there's an acute knowledge that animal farming is both cruel and bad for the environment. And, and an alternative, I think, would be highly welcomed by people who are, you know, the younger uh, people. And um, so I'm, I'm not really concerned about that. And we've already had one example of a country highly sophisticated with. Um, a strong regulatory authority authorizing uh, the first product. So it's going to happen much quicker than people think. Mm. Well, a, a final in investor's question, if I may. Your, your book, Moose Law, 
in includes a, a guide to some of the leading companies around the world that are um, uh, heavily invested already in, in this business. Um, I noticed um, certainly in Europe a, a good number of them in Germany, uh, uh, one or two companies in Britain, but not a large number. Um, do you uh, foresee this is an area that Brexit could facilitate in terms of regulation and, uh, and um, uh, cultured meat companies developing in the UK? Could that be very big for us? And uh, finally, um, you know, how long do you think before we start to see uh, major IPOs from uh, cultured meat companies? Yeah, great question. So the UK is absolutely right for this industry. Uh, we import about half of our food net, as you know, um, and that's an expense and it's also an insecurity. I mean, the Second World War pointed to the fact that all you have to do is, is uh, you know, blow up the shipping uh, of the food into the UK and you've got, you've got issues. So we should be at the forefront of this. There are some British companies and in the, in the plant-based stuff, the British are doing very well. Meatless Farms is an example. And you've also got corn, as you mentioned earlier on, Graham. Um, and, uh, but in the Salag stuff, we're not particularly strong. And the Netherlands is second to the, um, the US, which is by far the dominant in this field. Uh, the government is really doing what it can to promote aspects of the biotech industry. Uh, so John Bell has been given quite a lot of money, uh, and particularly as it relates to longevity studies and all that sort of stuff, which is great. Um, but as far as I'm aware, uh, nothing is being done uh, in the cell ag space. And so I think it would be great if people could lobby for Britain to have, you know, its own companies, its own industries and so forth. And we'll do what we can. And, you know, Agronomics, which is our company that was is listed on the London stock market, is now the biggest investor in this uh, area in the world. And we'll do everything we can to promote British enterprise and indeed we'd be looking to back British scientists and entrepreneurs to do what we've been describing most of which occurs outside of the UK but which would really suit the UK post-Brexit and indeed would suit it whether it was Brexit or not it's a, it's a great opportunity for the UK. Well uh, Jim Mellon uh, investor and author of uh, Moose Law which is uh, published and out now uh, thank you very much indeed for sharing your thoughts with us about this, what could potentially be an enormous change in how we eat, how we invest and the whole future of the economy. Uh, thank you very much indeed. Thanks a lot, Graham. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks very much. If you've enjoyed listening to The Critic podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.